morning, Transit, again for the third time. How's everyone doing? We good? All right. Hey, if, uh, in case you missed it, you uh, weren't here when I made the announcement at the beginning of the service, um, you might be saying, who's, who's up here leading us in, in worship this morning? That's John Campbell from our sister church in Arlington, Doxology Church. They meet at 5 p.m., and we needed some volunteers, and so uh, we asked John to come if he'd be willing to give his Sunday morning to lead us in exaltation of Jesus. And let's put our hands together one more time for him serving us in this fashion. Uh, the pastor at Doxology, another Acts 29 church in the area, is Steve Reed. And Steve Reed has recently preached from this pulpit. And so if you ever want to, like, double dip and get, like, your church on again uh, tonight at 5, go, uh, go see Doxology tonight. That uh, would be awesome. So our text today, as that sermon bumper showed, we're in Nehemiah. We're continuing through Nehemiah. Who here has been enjoying the Nehemiah series so far? It's been good, right? been challenging. It's been awesome. So Nehemiah 6, verses 1 through 14 is where we're going to be. Open your Bibles or turn them on or tap there to Nehemiah 6, 1 through 14. And the context of where we're at in the book of Nehemiah is that the walls are almost finished. The work is like, they're like rounding the, the final bend to finish uh, the walls. It's just the doors that need to get hung. And as they're about to round the bend, the enemies of God's people counterattack and plan a strategic kind of multi-layered uh, attack on Nehemiah to get, him to, quit, to get him to quit the work that God had enlisted him to do. And so the question we're going to ask of Nehemiah 6, 1 through 14 is this. I was going to frame out our sermon is, how do you and I keep on fighting the good fight of faith in the face of consistent, seemingly relentless opposition to the work God has called us to do? Stated differently, how do we persevere through opposition to continue to do what Jesus has called us to do? And the title of my message is this, is the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. If I were to give kind of a simple summary about Nehemiah, I wouldn't make it about Nehemiah. If I were to give a very generic recap of what Nehemiah is about, it's simply this. The Lord entrusted his servant to restore his city and his people's brokenness, right? The Lord entrusted his servant to restore his city and rebuild his people's brokenness. You might be saying, what in the world does that simple recap have to do with persevering through opposition? This is what it has to do with it. Follow my logic on this one. If Nehemiah is doing the Lord's business, because the Lord commissioned him to do it, if Nehemiah is doing the Lord's business, and people are all up in his business about it, then it's not Nehemiah's business that they're coming against. It's the Lord's business. It's the Lord's assignment that they're coming against. Uh, and so therefore, if you are on God's mission and opposition comes against you, then the secret to persevering through it is realizing that it might not be about you and overcoming it certainly isn't just up to you because the battle belongs to the Lord. And there's three things that we see Nehemiah do in our text today in response to kind of multi-leveled strategic resistance to God's work. There's three things that he does that I think we can uh, uh, learn from today. And those three things are this. If you're taking notes, I'll read these three points and then we'll pray and dive into our text. When we are in a season of opposition, of doing God's work, we need to, one, let the Lord be our guide. Two, let the Lord be our strength. And lastly, three, let the Lord be our advocate. Let the Lord be our guide, our strength, and our advocate. Let's pray, and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly, Lord. We come before you grateful that we worship a mighty God and an awesome God. 
We come before you grateful that we can come before you. Covered, cleansed, forgiven, like John was saying in the call to worship. We can come to you on a, on a great Sunday, hands in worship, just praising you because it's a season of, of not discouragement or despair. It's actually a season where we're, we're full of joy of following you. And for some of us, we're here and we're weary and we're war-torn and we're heavy laden and there's opposition and we're discouraged. And Jesus invites both to come with hands raised to praise him. And so we thank you, God, for that honor, Jesus, that you've, uh, you've given us, the privilege that you've given us, Lord Jesus, that, that the likes of us can come to you just as we are, to a great and mighty king. And so we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, you would minister to our hearts, you'd have your way with your word and your people this morning, Lord Jesus. Would you help us to fix our eyes upon you? Would you help us to get the focus off of ourselves? And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would increase and I would decrease. And pray this in your name. Amen. All right, first point is this, let the Lord be your guide. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakifarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So what we see here is that the three stooges are back in action, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And remember, uh, as we talked about this in previous sermons, is that these three individuals were leaders of entire provinces uh, around Jerusalem and Judah. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Tobiah was most likely the governor of Ammon. And Geshem was most likely a powerful chieftain of Kedar in northwest Arabia. And the implication was, was this, was that these three individuals were eager to maintain their political upper hand in the region, and they had the resources to back up their threats of violence. It's like if we set out as a transit church to do something in the pizza slice, like rebuild some massive walls in the pizza slice, and the governor of Prince William County and the governor of Loudoun County and you know, so on and so forth like rallied against us. That's what we're up against here. That's what Nehemiah is up against. And what's interesting here is that their initial approach to stopping God's people from doing God's work and stopping Nehemiah were direct threats of violence. It was a direct attack. It was a direct approach to get Nehemiah to stop the work. Like, we will uh, attack you and harm you and to get you and force you to stop. We see that we saw that in Nehemiah 4. Now their strategy has changed. They realized that didn't work, so they, they needed to change up their offensive strategy. And now their attack is a little bit more subtle, a little bit more clever, a little bit more indirect. And so what they do is they rally together and they say, hey, let's, let's, let's have this be our approach. We kind of came off too strong. Let's let this be our approach. We, let's, uh, let's come across like other well-intended political leaders in the region, simply extending a cordial invite to the new guy in town. That will now be our approach. And so they sent a messenger to Nehemiah who said this, hey, Sanballat and Tobiah would love to meet up. They wanted just to call the elephant in the room, hey, you know, the relationship uh, got off to a rocky start. We threatened to take your life. A little bit of an overreaction. We're so sorry. We love to like kind of hash out our differences and reconcile and partner with. So why don't you come to the plane of, oh no, we'll buy you lunch and coffee and we'll just hash this out, right? That 
was their approach. It was subtle. It was indirect. And I love Nehemiah's response here. I love it. He doesn't even, to the messengers that come to him, he doesn't even acknowledge their intent to do him harm as the reason he, meet, he won't meet up with them. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not like, wait, are you guys serious? Like, you guys don't see that I can see through that? Like, do you think I'm that stupid? He doesn't even say that. Instead, this is what he says in verse 3. He says, and I sent messengers to them saying this, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah's response was this. He says, sorry, maybe if I was doing something else or some other kind of work for some other kind of king, I could come down and hang out with you but I'm doing great things for a great king. I'm doing great things for a great king, and I cannot be distracted from the work I'm doing. And so how did Nehemiah persevere through this opposition? Is he let the king of kings be his guide? The decision was easy for Nehemiah. He says, the great king of kings is my guide. The king of kings has led me here to do this work. And until that king sends his true messengers to tell me otherwise, the work's not stopping, I'm not moving, I'm not going anywhere. This is too great for me. So the lesson we learn here, what I'm getting at is this. If you have a clear sense of the greatness of who you're following and the awe of the great work he's called you to do, the temptations to leave your king's work diminish in Power. John 6, uh, John uh, Campbell quoted that in his prayer. Uh, I love John 6. Jesus says some really hard things to uh, lots of people who are following him, and Jesus says some really hard sayings. A lot of people leave. Hundreds of uh, quote-unquote disciples leave Jesus, and only the 12 remain, and Jesus looks at them and says, what do you decide? Are you guys going to leave too? And Peter says this, where else will we go? Jesus, you have the words of life, meaning essentially this, there's no one else I'd rather follow and there's nothing else I'd rather do. There's no one else I'd rather follow, and there's nothing else I'd rather do but follow you, Jesus, where you're calling me to go, no matter how difficult it is and how hard it is. And so the truth of the matter is this. It's really hard to leave something you love doing, and it's really easy to leave something you don't, right? Like, it's really hard. If you, if you love doing something, it's really hard to leave that. And if you don't like doing something, it's really easy to leave it, okay? So um, you can throw up a picture there on the slides. As I was working on my sermon this week, um, I got a son. He's uh, a year and a half. And actually, no, no, in November, he'll be two years. But my man loves mowing the sidewalk, all right? <laughs> he loves it. And so you might say, Nick, how do you come up with these illustrations? This was my view from my bottom window as I'm writing the sermon. I'm like, that'll work as an illustration. Okay, so Jen's out of the, he's not going by himself. All right, there's a parent there. Anyways, um, so if I were to, um, well, let me just tell you this. So we found this lawnmower. I don't know where we got it, but um, he loves this thing. He's seen daddy mow the lawn. Whenever I mow the lawn, he wants to mow the lawn. I think if I were to get into his head of what he's doing, he thinks he's doing a great task. He's following in his daddy's footsteps, right? And we'll walk the entire block, like half a mile loop around our house, and he will mow the entire sidewalk. And I actually think that he thinks it's actually accomplishing something. Like, it's actually doing something. Like, he's serving the community because this lawnmower is, like, cleaning the sidewalk or something. You know, he takes it really seriously. And he loves it. And so, if, so what I'm getting at is he loves this task 
so much to him as a little two-year-old. It's a high calling. It's a great calling. There's nothing he'd rather do. So if I were to come up and say, hey, do you want to go do something else? What do you think that little man says? No. Like, no, thank you. And he just keeps going. Like, he does that all the time, right? It's an easy decision for him because it's really hard to leave something you love doing. Now, if he's at the dinner table trying to eat broccoli and carrots, and I say, hey, leave that and come with me and let's go mow the lawn, he'll leave in a heartbeat, okay? Because nobody likes that. Well, little kids don't like eating carrots and broccoli. Um, so the point I'm making is this. This is the point I'm making. Awestruck wonder and gratitude for how good and great and awesome our God is and how great the work is that he's entrusted to us. I think it's one of the biggest keys to overcoming discouragement. And so the application for this for, first point is this, is if, if our hearts had grown, have grown dull to who our God is, who our king is, and where he's led us. Like, like for some of us, maybe your king has led you into situations where you're like, hey, this task seems below me, or this is a really, really difficult vocation that God has given me. One of the beautiful things that we can do is, 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 is kind of Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, The Rare, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says we can turn water into wine. What do we already have that God has given us, and where can we change our internal disposition about our circumstances to turn it into the sweetness of wine, saying, God, in your love for me, you've led me here, you've called me here, and I know that you're here, you've led me here. And although it's hard, although persecution maybe at work is coming, slanderous lies are coming, or it's just a really difficult season, I know that I know that you are with me, and I will not be shaken. And it's an honor to serve you, the great and mighty King. That's what we need is ask God to flood our hearts again with awe and wonder of who he is and the honor that it is to serve him. Like we talked about last week, melting our will into his. So there's not two wills, there's one, one will. The next point is this. After we gladly let him be our guide and we're, we're, we're content there and we love serving God, the subtle temptations to uh, be distracted with sin or distracted with whatever things we can be distracted with, those pale in comparison as we're setting out to do a great thing for the Lord. But the second thing we see in our text is that in a season of discouragement and opposition, we need to let the Lord be our strength. We need to let the Lord be our strength. Verses five through nine. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among, you, among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel this is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. In verse 8, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. Verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So what we see in our text is a fifth wave of attack comes, and instead of it kind of uh, being a subtle attack, now it's in the form of uh, open and public slanderous lies about Nehemiah and his intent to rebuild the wall. We see a servant of Sanblat has come all the way from Samaria, 
with an open letter in his hand stating that Nehemiah intended to rebel against the Persian Empire, establish himself as king, and that Nehemiah even paid off a bunch of prophets to announce on the Lord's behalf that Nehemiah is the coming king to reign over Jerusalem. And there's a key detail in our text that's important for us to realize is when we see here talking about an open letter, um, historically, uh, 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 in a perfect world, what should have happened is if Sanballat gave a letter to his servant, he would have sealed it with his seal. And that seal would have remained on the letter and only Nehemiah would have opened it. But the strategy that Sanballat and his servant had is that they broke the seal, they opened it up. And what that meant was that what Nehemiah knew, what the text is alluding to, is that all the way from Samaria, around the surrounding region, all the way down to Jerusalem, is that the servant pretty much went to social media, took this thing viral, and told everyone about Nehemiah's plot to uh, 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 overthrow the Persian king and establish uh, the reign of Jerusalem in Judah. The seal was broken. Uh, uh, the slanderous lies about Nehemiah went viral. They're trending on social media. And the point of this slanderous attack was to instill so much fear in Nehemiah that it would actually be his choice to attack. Right? Like there actually isn't any attack that's come yet on Nehemiah. The attack is, hey, let's destroy his reputation. Let's spread lies about him. Let's spread lies about the future so that we get King Artaxerxes involved and that he ends up in prison or executed or maybe even worse, worse things happen to him. So their approach was let's, in, in, let's, let's have fear. Let's let the weapon we use be fear so that it begins to, to mess with his mental fortitude so that Nehemiah just willingly lays down his sword, and willingly laid down, lays down his shovel, and they stop working on the walls. So I heard a line this week that was, was, was beautiful. It's from a friend. We we're just catching up and talking about stuff, and he said this. He said, you and I will serve what we fear. You serve what you fear. And a test came for Nehemiah, and the test was this. Who will Nehemiah fear more? Who does Nehemiah fear more, King Artaxerxes or the king of king Artaxerxes, you will serve what you fear. And I imagine if, if I were to put myself in the shoes of Nehemiah, we put ourselves in the shoes, it seems, and the impression we get from the text, is that this attack, this, this kind of opposition, kind of hit closer to home for Nehemiah because the stakes for Nehemiah suddenly got infinitely higher. He doesn't know how many people know about these slanderous lies. He doesn't know if word got back to Persia. He doesn't know what could happen or what the future holds. And maybe Nehemiah began to stagger a little bit. Maybe his mental fortitude began to wane. Maybe his knees began to knock. Maybe real discouragement began to really set in in his heart. And we see that in his response in verse 9. After all of this, a fifth assault comes against him. And in verse 9, he prays this prayer. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. So two things I want to highlight with that response. One, you only ask for someone to give you something when you don't have it. You only ask, there's no point if I have a cup of coffee and I ask you to get me a cup of coffee. I would never ask you if I have something I already need. You tracking with me? But if I don't have a cup of coffee, you can feel free to go get me one. Okay. That's what I'm getting at is, that, is this. If Nehemiah already inside of himself naturally had the strength to continue to persevere through opposition, he wouldn't need God. He wouldn't need to pray. He wouldn't need to ask God for strength if he already had everything he needed apart from God. God, thank you for making a way. 
before King Artaxerxes and making a way for him to commission me to go. I don't need you anymore. God, I got this. I got this. I'll, I'll look internally for the strength that I need to persevere. No, no, no. Nehemiah looked externally for the Lord to be his strength. And the reason I share that, it's really easy for us to hyper-spiritualize Nehemiah's perseverance. Like this didn't actually discourage him. This didn't actually like, like, like stagger him a little bit. Like, oh, if we could just be more like Nehemiah who brushed everything on. No, no, no. He's staggered. If, if you're praying for strength, God, strengthen my hands for work. You're saying my hands are weak and I'm being tempted to stop the work. And what we see here is that this was tough. And although the enemy didn't take Nehemiah out, he was beginning to feel the fiery darts that the adversary was sending his way. That's the first point I want to make is you only ask someone to give you something when you don't have it. But secondly, you only ask someone to give you something that you know they can give you. Right? You only ask someone to give you something that you know they can give you. And often, I think one of the reasons we run all other places for strength in a season of discouragement is opposition because we don't believe that God can actually become our strength in that season. And throughout the scriptures, the beautiful truth of our standing as children of God is the Lord has promised to give us the strength and the ability to do what he's called us to do and to endure any season of opposition we're going through. And the key to Nehemiah's perseverance through a season of opposition, it actually wasn't Nehemiah's strength. It was somebody else's strength that got him through that. It actually wasn't Nehemiah's strength that helped him persevere through opposition. It was actually his weakness that helped him persevere because in his weakness is what led him to run to omnipotence. Human frailty, his human weakness, and his natural self led him to run for a power, to draw from a power that was not his own. And I think the biggest temptation when we're in a season of discouragement and opposition is to rely on something else to get us through it besides the Lord. So when we're in a season of consistent discouragement, uh, I gotta be honest, it drains your battery life, right? Like if you're a phone, you guys don't even drain your battery life, and you see the percentage, and you're like, I'm not even at 20%. I feel like I'm at 5% battery life. Like my phone is blinking red, and I feel like I just can't get oxygen. That's what a season of discouragement does. That's the approach the enemy does. I can just wear this person down, not actually physically assault them or harm them, but just wear them down so that they're the ones who end up deciding to quit. So the season then of opposition that drains our battery life, the key to plowing ahead is where you and I choose to draw strength from what outlet are we going to go to in order to recharge and revive our weary souls? And Jesus Christ died. He gave his life to pour out his Holy Spirit upon the church so that you and I would have rivers of living water continually running out of our soul. John 7, 37 through 39. Uh, the waters that satisfy, true waters that satisfy. Paul Apostle Paul to Timothy said in uh, 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7, uh, the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind by his spirit. His spirit's power is made perfect. 2 Corinthians 12 uh, is made perfect in our weakness because it's finally in our weakness that we begin to draw on omnipotence so that we can do what we would never be able to do apart from crying out for God. And so the question then is this, is where are you running today? Where have you been running this week in your discouragement and opposition and, 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 and even maybe you're here and you're, you have condemnation? Where are you going to draw strength from? I'd be saying, well, how does a phone, how does, how does if, you're, if we're using the phone illustration, how do you recharge? Well, how, does, how do you recharge your phone? Everyone knows this illustration, right? You, there's only one source of power 
that will recharge this thing so it will do what it's designed to do. And it has to sit on your nightstand or wherever you put it. Maybe you have to put it down in the basement or whatever. But you put it on your nightstand and, you play, and it has to abide. It has to remain connected to that power source. And what is it doing? It, this phone has no power in and of itself to keep doing what it needs to do when it's on 5% battery life. It's only shot, it's only shot is when you plug it into a power source that's not its own and you say, you stay put. You don't move an inch. This is not, I can't just go one minute, okay, we good, okay, cool, I got 6%, all right. Often that's what we do, right? We throw up a Jesus take the wheel prayer and then we put, and we got, okay, we're, now I'm on 6%, that's a little better. No, 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 Jesus says in John 15, if you abide in me, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. You'll bear much fruit. And so what are the lies you're believing? What are they, what's leading you and guiding you in this season away from Jesus being the source of your strength, Jesus being the source of your uh, uh, quenching your thirst and, get, and recharging and reviving your soul? Uh, maybe maybe it's, it's, you know, who knows what that is for you. But I just want to encourage you that he has sweeter waters to offer. And Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If our battle is not just against flesh and blood, but against supernatural forces of darkness, then if we seek to fight this good fight of faith just in our flesh, we are actually toast to the schemes of the devil. But the great news, the promise in this text is that we, since we can't fight this battle, we can let the Lord fight on our behalf. The battle belongs to the Lord. We can fight in his supernatural strength against the supernatural evil that's coming against us to get us to stop following Jesus and turn elsewhere. God has promised to provide the strength we need to enter into the battle and to fight the good fight of faith. Let's let the Lord be our strength. Today it would serve us well to do an audit of where am I running to? What false outlets am I running to to recharge my battery life? whether that's, oh, maybe Netflix or maybe just another round of, of golf or maybe, you know, whatever that is for you apart from throwing yourself at the mercy of Jesus, running to him heavy laden, weary and burdened, Jesus continually would draw away to desolate places to pray and draw, draw strength, supernatural strength from abiding in his Father's presence. Can we carve out time today? If you're here and you're like, I don't know if I can make, could you carve out time, an appointment with Jesus, 30 minutes, phone off, me and him in the prayer closet and I'm, and I'm coming to him with all of my weaknesses, all of the, the places where I need him to be my strength. Forsake the false outlets and draw, draw deeply of the well of river, uh, rivers of living water that Jesus died to give us. And lastly, uh, let's let the Lord be our advocate in a season of discouragement and opposition. This is the third thing we see in our text, verses 10 through 14. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah and the son of Mehethabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Um, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. So they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. 
Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So this final assault, all the other kind of assaults, uh, the opposition came from outside the four walls of Jerusalem. This attack against Nehemiah actually came from the inside out. Those are usually the hardest ones to, uh, to combat, right? Uh, when it comes from inside the house of God. And what Tobiah and Sambalat did is they hired some prophets, they paid off some prophets to entrap Nehemiah to enter the temple, to go hide in the temple, which obviously was a sin against the Lord because he is not a priest. He has no business being in the Lord's temple as only priests were allowed to. And their hope was, hey, let's just tarnish Nehemiah's reputation and make his life miserable and make everyone turn on him. And so if the enemy can't directly get Nehemiah to turn on him, what they're trying to do now is get all of God's people to turn on Nehemiah through tarnishing his reputation, okay? That's why division and gossip in the church is so uh, divisive, and I believe is of the demonic, is because you get everyone's reputation rallied around you to discredit someone that you don't like to make them leave what they're doing. It's toxic, rather than contending for unity and going directly to the individual. And so the temptation Nehemiah faced, this attack was consistently on his public reputation. And the natural response that we have if someone tarnishes our public reputation, right, what's the natural response? It's a public counterattack to defend our reputation, right? We, if someone is, is slandering you on social media, I just, you know, whatever, on Facebook or Twitter, whatever, what's the natural response? Run to, so, run to the keyboard and start typing away and be your advocate and defend yourself and fight for your reputation. And what's shockingly absent from this text is Nehemiah publicly seeking to counter the slanderous attacks that are coming from him. Instead, Nehemiah entrusted his reputation and vindication to the Lord. Instead, he didn't run to defend himself. He actually ran to the Lord to defend himself. He called in the Lord. He said, Lord, this battle belongs to you. This assignment you've given me belongs to you. It's hard. It's difficult. I'm weak. Uh, since you called me to this, would you give me the strength to keep doing it? And also, this work depends upon if the people have an insurrection. Then, then would, you, would you be my advocate, God? I entrust my reputation to you as these people are spreading lies and trying to entrap me, to discredit me amongst the people of God. And he says this in verse 14. This is his prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And at first glance, it seems like, all right, Nehemiah, he's just calling down some brimstone on his enemies, right? It seems like that's what he's doing. But actually, it's something far more beautiful. Uh, what Nehemiah is doing here is he's taking vengeance out of his hands, right? Nehemiah is not you know, putting his mouth guard in, getting his, his gloves on, and stepping into the ring. No, he's going to the Lord in prayer, and he's saying, Lord, would you, would you fight on my behalf? Lord, before you, I am servant, you are Lord. I have to give an account to you and you alone. And, and, and remember them, they have to give an account to you. At the end of the day, they don't stand in judgment to me in the way they've wronged me. They actually stand in judgment for, against you. And so would you remember these things? I, this, is what we, this is a lesson we uh, well, again, I'm ahead of myself. Let me say this. One of the hardest things to do when people persecute you and accuse you and slander you is releasing them into God's hands and out of your hands, whether it's a, a, 
uh, a tough situation at work or tough situation in your family. Maybe persecution is coming, lies coming against you about being a follower of Jesus. One of the hardest things to do is entrusting uh, those who are coming against you into the Lord's hand and not uh, putting on the gloves and fighting back because the natural response when attacked is we run to be our advocate, but consistently scripture encourages us in the face of opposition to let God be our advocate. Let him be our guide, let him be our strength, but also let him be our advocate. Romans 12, 17 through 19 says it this way. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, beloved of God, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. You know the only way it's, it's possible to not avenge yourselves and take justice into your own hands if the second line is actually true. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. The way we persevere through opposition is letting God keep the books and you keep on serving God. Let God keep the books. God, you're a judge. And honestly, that's what forgiveness is all about. I think for a long time in my life, I had a hard time forgiving other people because it was just like, I declare you forgiven. I have no idea what that means. Well, uh, when we choose not to forgive people, actually what we're doing is we're carrying anger. We think that there was maybe a legitimate evil or wrong that was done to us. And so we hold on to that. And as judge, we hold on to that anger, that wrong they've done. And we kind of stand on this high platform and they're there on the bench. And we just consistently condemn them because we don't want them to get away with it. Say what they did was wrong, and maybe it was legitimately wrong. We say, well, I will hold on to this resentment and bitterness against you because you have wronged me. And what forgiveness is, is getting off of this stage and getting down on your face before the Lord and realizing that there's only one judge of the living of the dead, and you're not it. You're not the judge. Uh, you actually have to give an account just like they have to give an account for the way they, for their sins before the Lord. You actually have to give an account to the judge. So you quickly say, whoop, let me get off the, the throne of judgment here, and I release those people to you, and I have to realize that I'm, I'm shoulder to shoulder with those that I'm, I'm accusing. I, I'm, I, I'm guilty of the same things. You who pass judgment, how are you not guilty of the same things? Right? That's the key, I think, to releasing resentment and forgiving others is there is an entrusting that takes place. God, would you remember, Lord, there, there were legitimate wrongs that were done. Would you remember that? But I forgive them for that. I clear and I cancel the debt and I entrust them out of my hands. I am not a good judge. I'm probably a pretty evil judge. You're a kind and patient and gracious judge. I give them to your hands and then you pray a sweet blessing upon those that are coming against you. Because that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who curse, uh, who curse you. That's how we continue to persevere through opposition is entrusting ourselves to the Lord when persecution comes our reputation is tarnished and in that conflict and in that persecution something that's so helpful if you're in the midst of whatever conflict of this text uh, applies to you is asking yourself when you're wronged and when you're slighted is saying this how would the devil like me to respond in this situation it's a really helpful thing, maybe in your marriage or work dynamics or whatever, is saying, how would the devil just love for me to respond? And often it looks like, boom, I'm in it, and I'm, we're, just, we're just, you know, going after it. Versus saying, how would Jesus invite me to respond in this? How can I entrust this situation and these people that are coming against me to a better judge, to a kinder judge, to a more gracious judge? And so for today, um, uh, John and the band, you can come up. I'll conclude with this. Um, today, if you are here today and harboring resentment, maybe just like Nehemiah, there's been 
uh, one person or two people or three people who have rallied a bunch of other people around you, wherever you're at, or maybe just one, and that person is just consistently coming and attacking you, and it's not warranted. And you're saying, what is going on? What would it look like for you today before the Lord to release forgiveness upon that individual? and to walk in compassion, and to fight for unity, as Romans 12 says, to strive to live at peace with everyone as much as it depends on you. Let that transaction take place, especially before we partake of the Lord's Supper. But the last thing I want to conclude with is this, verse 11. I love what Nehemiah says in verse 11. He says this, Should such a man as I run away? And then he says this, And what man such as I could go into the temple, and live. I will not go in. This line here shows Nehemiah's humble confidence in the Lord. He recognizes his human sinfulness, his human bro- his brokenness, that he's like, I can't go into the temple and live. Like, I will, I will fall out under the glory of God. That's not a good place for me to go. I am a sinner. And yet, And yet in the same line, he had this confidence in who he was in God and what God had called him to do. He said, will such a man as I go run away and hide from my enemies? I love that. I love that line. And often, our accuser, our adversary, the devil, will tempt us, will harass us to hide and quit. And the way he does that is by discrediting us, discrediting us, discrediting, discrediting us. He's constantly waves our, our failures in our face as our accuser, right? That's the adversary's role. That's the demonic's role, is let me just harass you and accuse you so you now think you're completely disqualified to follow Jesus. Oh, you lost your anger. You lost your temper again at home. Oh, you forfeited yet another opportunity at work to share the gospel. You think you're a follower of Jesus? Oh, you fell into the trap of lust again. Oh, you've wasted time on Netflix again. Who are you to disciple others? Who are you to go hit the streets and pray for others? Who do you think you are? That's the accuser. That's the adversary. And when those attacks come, we have to realize that it, this is not our battle to fight. We have an advocate. This is what 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Perhaps, well, how, how is Jesus our advocate to the Father? How does he speak a better word? How does he contend for us? How has he fought for us? Well, that word propitiation for our sins, propitiation means appeasement, means satisfaction. And what that means is that on the cross of Jesus Christ, the just wrath of God against your sins and mine They were fully and forever satisfied in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And the implication of Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf that satisfied God's just wrath against our sins. He's the propitiation 
the, satisfacti- the satisfactory sacrifice on behalf of our sins. He atoned for our sins. And so the implication of that is this, is that when the devil stands in the judgment seat over your life, consistently condemning you with consistent attacks on your identity as a follower of Jesus, you and I can call upon our advocate, Jesus Christ. And we can lead that devil to Calvary's hill and say, you're retrying a case that's already been settled 2,000 years ago. The verdict for my life was settled on Calvary's hill 2,000 years ago when Jesus cried out and said, it is finished. Nick Mudrazo, not guilty, cleansed, righteous, redeemed, forgiven, walking in holiness and at peace with God. And so then what that does in your life is it's not self-affirmation. It's us living gospel affirmations, believing what is true of our life. So when the devil comes to to harass us and tempt us with sins that have been nailed to the cross and remembered no more, and he tries to harass us to stop doing what Jesus has called us to do. What we can say is, shall, shall, shall such a child of God like me run away? I'm bought with the blood of Jesus. I'm seated with him, Ephesians 2, 6, in the heavenly places. I'm filled with the Spirit of God. Christ is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Shall such a child of God like me just quickly lay down my sword and my shovel, what God has called me to do. Proverbs says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. And that's the beauty of the grace of our Redeemer that he has to offer us. And the last thing I'll say is this, about Jesus being our advocate, is that Jesus was your Redeemer, right? He's your Redeemer and your advocate. So before maybe him presently being your advocate, first he was your Redeemer, meaning he purchased you out of bondage to the enemy, and now he holds the title to you. He holds the title to you as your redeemer. And so therefore, what that means is that the battle doesn't belong to us because we don't belong to us. You tracking with me on that one? The battle doesn't belong to us because we don't belong to us. We belong to Jesus. He's purchased us with his blood. And when the enemy comes after us, the enemy is actually coming against our advocate who has already gone to war on our behalf. And in Romans 8, it says, how much more will the Father give all things to those whom love him? If he's already given us his son, how much more will he give us all things? Do you believe that about Jesus? That he's interceding on your behalf. That he's fighting for you. That in the midst of your battle, he's present with you. And that you can trust him with your reputation. You can trust him with the call that he's given you. And you can keep going forward forward because you have an advocate. You have a guide. You have a redeemer. And you have a rock who has fought for you and continues to fight for you when all of hell, the world and the flesh and the devil, is coming against you. So before we take communion, let's reflect on Jesus our advocate, who he is and what he's done for us. And let's rejoice in our standing with God that he's won our war so that he can continue to help us fight the battles that remain. So let's posture our hearts before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, The scriptures encourage us to examine ourselves and examine our hearts before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I'll go silent. I'll give us a moment to do that and then we'll respond in praise and communion.
Father, we just thank you that you consistently invite us into something far better than what we're living in. Your way is better. Your will is better. Living for your kingdom is better than living for our kingdom. Uh, Leaning into your strength and your power is better than relying on our own strength. Releasing forgiveness is better than harboring resentment, Jesus. Thank you that you consistently guide us and lead us. Yes to green pastures and yes through the valley of the shadow of death. And I pray, Lord Jesus, over those who are here today and they're discouraged and they're heavy laden and they're burdened and the attack has been demonic in nature. They just feel harassed with shame and disqualification and just a consistent, unrelenting attack of shame and condemnation. That Jesus, the advocate, you would come and you'd break off the power of those lies. You would speak the truth. They would know the truth and they would cling to that truth, Jesus, that you say, you're my little children, my little child. You're beloved. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. No one can snatch you from my hands. And so, Lord, we thank you, God, that you're faithful and just as we come before you and asking for fresh forgiveness for maybe harboring resentment against people that are coming against us or going to other false gods, false idols to give us strength, only that the strength that only you can give us, God. We know that we can come to you because you're faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you're just because your justice was already satisfied on the cross. So our case doesn't have to get retried. Our sins are fully and finally forgiven. Our verdict has been decided never to be reopened before you again, Lord Jesus. So thank you that we all stand in your grace and we all stand in peace to you before you, the judge of the living and the dead today. So come, Holy Spirit, and for the remainder of this time during communion and worship, would you continue to minister your truth and your love and your peace and your grace to weary and discouraged hearts this morning. In Jesus' name.